0: Good afternoon. Uh, we're going to be in Ruth chapter 4, finishing Ruth. Uh, and I have mentioned this before, but we're going to be doing um, Haggai and then Hebrews. Um, I've been really excited about studying Haggai. Um, it's only two chapters. Um, it probably takes as long as, like, five minutes to read all the way through. Um, so you could probably read through it, like, 50 times before <laughs> next Sunday. Um But even if you just read it once or twice, you know, listen to it in your car, um, it'll just make the applications and um, the lessons just that much more substantial. Um, We were looking at James, uh, we'll get to Ruth eventually, I promise, but we were looking at James um, in the class that Cody's leading. And we were looking at the part of James where it talks about receiving the word implanted And I think the translation that um, Cody read out of it called it the implanted word, received the implanted word. You know, and even the kids could, you know, work out really fast. You know, the idea is kind of like a seed being planted in soil and it's being watered and then the roots are just going deep so that it can't be, like, uprooted or grabbed or snatched away. And I think that's the idea is, like, you know, when we understand the value of the word, the importance of what we gain from it, it's like we just want to eventually do everything we can to maximize the impact of learning from God's word. You know, so if like reading Haggai for a few minutes, you know, can potentially like make more connections from listening or engage a little bit more, then I would I would very much recommend just spending that little bit of time. Sometimes the reward of listening when you do that is not even so much what you're hearing, but in hidden ways again the deeper impact it can have, but also other things it can make you think of because your mind is already kind of saturated with the text already. Um, so Ruth chapter 4, um, before reading, just a couple of things to kind of put us back into the scene here in Ruth chapter 4. Um, for one thing, in uh, chapter 4 verse 1, now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. The phrase seems to infer that this was all happening on the same day Of what happened in chapter 3. So remember that Ruth is a Moabite woman where uh, she ended up in Moab actually um, meeting the son of Naomi and when Naomi initially went to Moab it was because of a famine in Israel in the time of the judges and famine for one in Israel isn't just something that's supposed to trigger a thought of happenstance or chance what that's really supposed to do is to put into your mind that the spiritual condition of Israel was bad because God promised them if they obeyed him there was going to be like national blessings that God would give and God would make sure like their food supply wouldn't wear out and that the the earth and the sky would make sure that it yielded produce for them continually so you kind of get into your mind like the condition of Israel spiritually at the start of this book was bad and when you read the book of Judges that's really not a surprise at all right so Naomi ends up going to Moab with her husband, her two sons, who then marry these two Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. And eventually all of these men end up dying and leaving these women without husbands and Naomi, a widow. And when they hear that food has been uh, given to Israel by God, they end up returning and Ruth ends up being the only Moabite uh, to end up staying with her. And she famously like, you know, speaks this magnificent covenant uh, toward Naomi in, in a sense like greater than anything we've ever seen anyone commit to another person in the Bible up to this point and we've just seen God blessing Ruth so lavishly and providentially through that covenant you remember she ends up in the field of this man Boaz not long after coming into Israel and God through his providence again just helps Ruth and Boaz connect to the point where are in chapter three Naomi had considered the fact that since Boaz was a close relative, God had given rights to those who had lost their husbands so that the relative could then redeem that widow to bring them into their household and raise up an inheritance to then preserve the name of the deceased. So Ruth was then uh, told by Naomi to privately go to Boaz to appeal to him for this right, And Boaz then very gladly, very eagerly assures her that he will fulfill his role, but there is one man who is a closer relative, and Boaz is a man of such godly integrity that he assured Ruth that she will be redeemed, but there uh, being this closer relative, it could potentially be him that redeems them instead. Still had assurance that if he doesn't want to do it, Boaz will indefinitely step in and uh, fulfill his responsibility but we'll see here that uh, Boaz will go through all of this very carefully, very lovingly. So chapter four. Uh, sorry, I haven't switched the slides. Um, chapter four, I've titled it Redemption's Glory, um, because even though we've been talking a lot about this concept of redemption through Ruth, I think like God really ends this book really trying to magnify the beauty and the glory of what redemption really is by his working and by his design. So we'll see redemption's glory, and we're going to start in verses 1 through 10. Now, Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. Remember, this is the closer relative who could, by right, still redeem Ruth. So he said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. He took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. That was Naomi's deceased husband. So I thought to inform you, saying, buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. Then he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabites, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. The closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and the exchange of land to confirm any matter a man removed his sandal and gave it to another, and this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So the closest relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. So just as a a side note, just to like acknowledge it briefly, the whole like removing a sandal thing is kind of strange. It's kind of like um, when Ruth went to appeal to Boaz by laying at his feet and it's not really explained. You just kind of have to think through like, okay, well, well, why? Um, Deuteronomy 25, uh, 8 through 10 has a little bit of a similar practice in redeeming, like, land and property and the way that they're doing that here. What makes that different, though, is that was to convey something disgraceful. So, like, the woman who is not being redeemed would take off the sandal of the man who would not redeem her, and then she would spit in his face, and she would declare, so be it for the man who will not, like, fulfill his responsibility. Um, This I don't see as something that, like, is... You know, to convey something disgraceful, it may be they've adapted that into more of a cultural norm. Um, just to convey the fact that, like, you know property rights to walk on this land that now belongs to you is being handed over to you. Um, so it may be from deuteronomy twenty five, but just to be clear, it seems like it's it's somewhat of a different practice here that may be just an application of an inference from um, that passage. So with the more important focus of the passage, though, This closest relative who's not named, which is interesting because he wanted to preserve um, his inheritance. Um, I just want to think for a second, like, why would he not want to redeem Ruth along with the land? Um, I think one thing in the way that Boaz presents this, I don't think Boaz is trying to trick his closer relative. Like, on the surface reading, you could think the way that it's, you know, described in verse 3 and 4 that maybe Boaz is almost like craftily withholding information and kind of like, gotcha, you got to get Ruth too, you know. I don't think that's the idea. I think Boaz in actuality is trying to make this as appealing as possible actually to try to maximize this closer relative's willingness to redeem Ruth. It's kind of like a business practice how like if you have information that is like you know for sure you have some information that, like, a buyer will really like and really give them incentive to want to buy or invest. But then you have other information, maybe is a little more risky, and you know that, like, you know, they might potentially still want to invest, but you know bringing that up is going to be a risk. So, you know, the, the wise thing is, well, bring up the pretty parts first, and then once they've seen that attraction, then you can kind of maybe bring up the other parts to you know, make it a point that it's not all bad or difficult, you know, so really focus on the brighter and prettier parts of it. So again, I don't think Boaz is trying to trick the closer relative in the way he presents it. I think he's trying to just be wise about making this appealing along with acknowledging the risk and difficulty of Ruth being involved in being redeemed in this as well. The reason why I think that's important to think about It's amazing that not only was Boaz willing to yield to God's law in the first place, when he obviously really loved and respected Ruth and wanted to marry her, not only is it amazing that, for one, he was willing to forfeit marrying her for the sake of God's law, but for two, the fact that he was attempting to draw in the closer relative, to want to maximize his willingness and to appeal to his willingness, I think makes it even more amazing. He was legitimately trying to work with God's will that if at all possible, to make sure that God's will, as it would have been written, would have been as clearly and as carefully followed on the matter as possible. I think that is so amazing. And it shows, again, so much of the heart of Boaz. Now magnifying the heart of Boaz. Remember, Orpah in chapter one, Naomi urged Orpah to go back to Moab in a way that like when Orpah did go back, I don't think we're supposed to read into that, that Orpah was making some like sinful decision, but she was making a reasonable decision based on the reasonable things that Naomi was putting into her mind. But what that does is it magnifies the grace of Ruth's willingness to go above and beyond what was reasonable that's exactly what this closer relative does for Boaz because he's doing what's reasonable like when he brings up that this is going to endanger his inheritance again I don't think we're supposed to read into this like wow this guy's a selfish jerk like he's being unreasonable or unwilling to do what God wants him to do I mean Boaz has given him very clear option to back out of it and it'd be okay Like, he's told him, look, if you don't want to redeem this, that's fine. I'm giving you the option because you're the closest relative, but I'm assuring you, if you don't do it, I will, right? So I don't think we're supposed to think anything negative about the closer relative, but just like Orpah to Ruth, what this does is it magnifies Boaz's willingness to do something far beyond what is only reasonable. think another way to think about this so like with adoption which i think is a very close modern equivalent to some of the things that boaz was doing here like so for instance like glenn and antoinette you know are trying to adopt two more kids and like they they understand and have had conversations about the fact that that's going to require sacrifice on their part right and obviously the sacrifice is not like the moment of adoption it's everything that comes afterward Right? And it's, I think the closer relative is making it evident that there were very real, serious sacrifices that were going to need to be made to take Ruth into the household. And Boaz was so eager about this, he would not of himself brought any attention to that at all. The way this would work, by law, Boaz would invest in Ruth, raise her children as his own, but it would all belong to Ruth as their inheritance and not go to him. It's a very selfless, very sacrificial law. And Boaz would have adapted that without bringing any attention to the magnitude of investment and sacrifice he was making simply for the sake of the fact that God had desired this to be done so that someone's name could be preserved. Another irony, too, just a small thing. The closer relative, again, is not named. But this is all about preserving name. And it's Boaz whose name ends up being preserved, even though he was taking the risk of sacrificing and investing in something that was endangering his own inheritance, right? So uh, verse 11 through 17. You'd expect from here, like, for it to end differently, I think. Um, Ruth, to me, ends in a really shocking way, like in every way. I would expect maybe kind of like a Disney movie or like a fairy tale movie, you get like a wedding scene, you know? Like you see them exchanging vows and maybe the story would just very briefly like follow their relationship into marriage and like you get kind of like a happily ever after kind of thing. Like it just kind of continued on as good as it began, you know? Or maybe you get a window into their later years. But like immediately here, it begins to divert away from Boaz and Ruth particularly. We get one more window into these people blessing Boaz particularly, but in verse 13 and forward, it focuses on Naomi and then where this all was leading according to God's plan. So focusing first on these blessings, uh, verse 11 through 12, I'm going to read that first. All the people who were in the court and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. And may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this woman. So you remember at the uh, first lesson, kind of an introduction, we talked about these various pieces in place that would relate to the book of Ruth pieces that went all the way back to the book of Genesis with some really unusual things that seemed out of place amidst like the story of Joseph even promises that were made specifically to Judah in Genesis uh, as well um, I think the idea is like they're saying things that are picking up on names that like even the reader would have pretty much forgotten about by now you know and like you've maybe even in coming to these sermons like have already forgotten about those pieces <laughs> being in place and like that's kind of the point is these like long forgotten things the people here i think were so earnest about remembering what god was striving to do with his nation and in these promises that god had made a long time ago and like meditating on how those promises had even begun to come to fruition and like what were the implications of god's character god's purpose the goals of the blessings that were originally made to Abraham, like, why? Were they supposed to just be a nice nation who had a good godly law and holy practices of themselves, and they just kind of maintain house in the meantime and just try to do their best? I think the basis of these blessings that these people, these elders, are speaking, they understand the same thing about their nation in this time that people understood about their nation in the time when Jesus was born. Turn to Luke chapter 2, verse 38. Luke chapter 2, verse 38. I think the idea of redemption in the book of Ruth is beyond something just Boaz and Ruth do and receive. I think based in these words, the people understand their nation is in a condition that the nation needs to be redeemed. And that what Boaz had done for Ruth, redeeming Ruth, was of such a godly quality that this would be the thing that they were hoping would lead to the redemption of their nation. It's very similar to Anna the prophetess in verse 38 of Luke chapter 2, if you're there. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God, and that is when she saw the baby Jesus and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. I think these were people who, living in the book of Judges, had that same attitude. They understood how terrible the condition of their nation was in their time. These were people who obviously loved God. I mean, you just look at the way that they're, like, talking about these things and the way they use God's name, and you look at what they're desiring. It's almost like in verse 12, with them bringing up the house of Perez and Tamar, which were born to Judah, you know, and God going to, or hoping that god will grant them uh children to almost like renew the nation and restore it as a new beginning kind of like perez and tamar was like this new beginning for the nation of judah Um, and i think it just shows again like this great sense of faith and and perceptiveness um, in the nation around them so let's let's read the next section 13 through 17 so boaz took ruth and she became his wife and he went into her And the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a Redeemer today, and may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. The neighbor women gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him obed He's the father of Jesse, the father of David. You know what's interesting is in verse 11 and verse 14, there these blessings that they're pronouncing, the similarity in the blessings is they both groups wish for this uh, communion of these people to result in infamy within Israel, which is exactly what happens with this leading to David and ultimately Jesus. Um, Notice in verse 13. I think this is surprising. Boaz takes Ruth. God enables Ruth to conceive. But in verse 14, who do the women speak to? I would expect the women to speak to Ruth. Like, Ruth is the one who's been working. She's been the one who's been redeemed. She's the one who's had the baby. But look in verse 14. They speak to Naomi. Ultimately, like, this is not a book. That's about, like... Naomi or Ruth or Boaz, I think it's important to note that ultimately this is a book that's about God as the central main character. So, like, this moving away from Ruth and Boaz here at the very end does not break the continuity or focus because it's really been about God vindicating and redeeming the whole time, right? So, I think it's worth noting the first words that these women say to Naomi, who are probably in chapter one the same women that Naomi told to not call her Naomi, but Mara because she was bitter. Um, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you. I just imagine that Naomi, by this point, you don't see her say anything. I just imagine that she has nothing to say and that really, like, she's speechless. And that's okay. Okay. I think this is all about God taking somebody who is in a circumstance where she made decisions and was living a life that put her in a position where she was helpless and vulnerable. And if nobody redeemed her, then she had nobody to take care of her or preserve her family name. And God overwhelmingly proving to this woman that he is still with her and has blessed her beyond anything that she could have ever have imagined and would continue to bless her in ways that she could not anticipate. And how God was able to transform this woman's barren circumstances into such fruitful conditions that would lead ultimately to the redemption of the entire world. So God had not left her. And it's interesting the earnestness of how much these women again observing these things want to like press this into her mind. And even though like the judges was a terrible time period, it's just amazing to me The godly people who are like all over Bethlehem in this time who just seem to have such a depth of love for God that they just are exuding as these circumstances play out. In verse 15 may he also be to you a restorer of life. David ultimately God worked through him to restore life to Israel and ultimately through Jesus God gave life back to the world. It's amazing how these people say things. I don't know if it's how you credit this, if it's like divine inspiration they were speaking by or God just blessed the earnestness of these things said just by simple faith. But I think it's important to note that these people were saying things with their mouths by their own will, things that were not like, you know, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to like prophesy. They were just saying things out of sheer godly kindness and it's almost like God was waiting for somebody to say something like this so that it could be traced back to this and that it could be proven that God listens to the earnest cries of his people and the wishes and the hopes that are consistent with his desires. So I think it's, it's amazing that we can see these things played out so extravagantly in just the, the woven tapestry of God's plan from this time forward. The other thing is this almost reads like a reflection. So we'll see this in the last few verses, but it's almost like we're expected to know who David is. And like the more we understand David and the more we understand how important David was to God's plan, the more we understand how much the nation of Israel was changed forever because of David, the more this book begins to matter more and more and more. And that's how it reads. It it doesn't read so much to me like it's so much as setting up David, which it is, So much much as it's expecting you to come back and look at it after you've seen the life of David and then just to be like utterly mind-blown, like, wow, amazing how God set all of this up. Verse 16. I think this is an amazing conclusion to the book. Naomi takes the child. Sorry, my battery on my laptop just died. Um, Naomi just... uh, Let me me plug that back in, actually. That's going to distract me with the screen being, like, bright blue there. It might turn on here eventually. Um, But Naomi, remember, who was completely barren in the beginning of the book, ends up now taking this child into her lap, nursing the child, and in verse 17, notice again who's naming this child. It's not Ruth. It's not Boaz. It's not Naomi. It's the neighbor women again. (laughs) And they're naming the child something that I think just fits so much with what this child represents for this family. Obed means servant or like a servant. This child, that's exactly what he was, not only to this family, but to God's nation in general, right? So if I can get my laptop back on and get the slides going again, Um, I'll catch it up once once it gets there. There we go. So Let's read 14 through, um, I'm sorry, the numbers were not adjusted correctly there. Um, Let's read 18 through 22 and finish the account. 18 through 22. Now these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron, to Hezron was born Ram, to Ram, Abinadab. To Abinadab was born Nishan, and to Nishan, Salmon. To Salmon was born Boaz, and to Boaz, Obed. And to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse, David. think one of the things of this reflection here, this statement is popular like in Genesis, these are the generations of. Um, Those are usually phrases that are meant to convey like an overall account of like a great family in Israel or some family of significance or even like the beginning of something new. Um, So for instance, in Genesis chapter 2 in verse 4, when it's beginning to like zoom in on the account of the heavens and the earth, it literally says, These are the generations of the heavens and earth. And then you have Genesis chapter 5. These are the generations of the sons of Adam. Um, And then you have the generations also um, of uh, the families leading through the book of Genesis and Exodus after that as well. Um, But I think with the, the phrase, these are the generations of, and then starting with Perez, how prepared God was, not only beforehand, to bring Ruth into his nation, how prepared he was to bless Ruth's decision to be in the nation in ways that she would not have been able to anticipate any of the choices she was making, but also how prepared God was to bless his nation in the future through Ruth, and how that magnifies the importance of this woman who saw no importance in herself because of her humility and I think the more we understand how prepared God is to receive a redeemed people, both the preparations made in the past and his hopes for the future, the more eager and comforted we become to invest as much as possible into God's purpose and God's plan that he's designed and that he's hoping in as we read it in scripture. Um, So the last thing I want to bring up is, before we get into reflections, think about the things that were transformed in this book. So we talked about a lot uh, how Naomi's life was transformed already in this book. You know, this woman who went from being barren and hopeless and bitter, who is now filled with hope, filled with joy, filled with life, filled with comfort. Think about Ruth, who is a foreign woman who may have, like, thought about God's nation and the beauty of what the nation of God was but ultimately she was still a Moabite and Moabites were by law forbidden from being citizens in Israel and yet she becomes not only a uh, relative of Naomi but then she ends up being a wife to Boaz who was a man of faith and wealth in Israel but not only that she ends up being one of the relatives of Jesus himself right think about how Boaz was transformed even though Boaz was obviously a man of faith already and he already had joy, how significant, how significantly God was able to use and draw out the grace that was in Boaz's heart to only further his condition and develop that condition, I think is also a transformation, even though it isn't from negative to positive. It's like Boaz was transformed by God from one glory to another. Like the glory of the goodness that was in his faith was being expanded To this book and drawn out to its conclusion. Then think about the nation of Israel. I think the end of this book, leading to David, really is meant to convey the the overriding principle of how God's power transforms. Boaz and Ruth, Naomi, were living in a very dark time. And do you agree, even with the news that Jim prayed about this morning and Mike mentioned the announcements, like these shootings that... Happened the last 24 hours, do you agree that we're living in a very dark time? Very chaotic time, a very unpredictable time, right? I think it's interesting that what God seals here is that the power of how He impacts a culture like that is not through wars, is not through political uprising, but just through people who are doing the best they can to humble themselves and be lights of God's glory in the intimacy of the opportunities that are right in front of them. You don't get the sense that Boaz is like overwhelmingly paranoid and bitter about the condition of the nation around him. You see him acknowledge it in passing when he's talking to Ruth about not going into another field because she'll probably get taken advantage of. So you see he's aware of it, but that really is not the focus of his perspective. It's just loving the people right in front of him and being as much a light as he could be in the intimacy of the circumstances where he was. That changed Israel more than the wars that were fought in the book of Judges or the book of First Samuel, more than Samson's strength and all the things that he did to conquer against the Philistines. The intimacy of the love of this book and the quietness of it had more power than any of those things to transform and to do good. All right. So some reflections. Um, Some of these I'm going to go through kind of briefly for the sake of time, just to kind of almost acknowledge the fact of it. And Hebrews 2 is going to be one of those things. Um, There's a lot of things that are said in the midst of these verses, but really the principle, I just want to put into your mind that Boaz was redeeming something that was lost, a condition and a position that was lost. And Boaz was recovering those things and giving them back by right. And Hebrews 2, I think, really conveys that when we're thinking about the account of Ruth, Jesus literally does both of those things for us. He recovers both a lost condition, but also gives back a lost position. Um, Hebrews 2, 5 through 13. I'm basically just going to read this, put that into your mind as a fulfilled type of the story, and, and go to the next reflection. For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking, but one has testified somewhere saying, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. What?" The Hebrew writer is saying there in verse 8 is like this stuff that was said in Psalm 8. We don't actually see the glory of those things. It's like there's this condition the psalmist is acknowledging that God gives man, but it's like lost. And we see it by faith. We trust that that's the position that God intended man to be in. But the reality is sin has taken that away. So verse 9, but we do see him who is made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, Because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Next point. Turn to Romans chapter 8, 28 through 30. Romans chapter 8, 28 through 30. Um, so just based on Boaz's, the sacrifice he was making to redeem Ruth, I think one of the things that Ruth teaches us is the glory of God's Sovereignty. That because of God's sovereignty, this sacrifice Boaz was making really ultimately was not in the grand scheme of things really a sacrifice. Like it was, but God was so overwhelmingly like re- repaying what was being lost that I think it's meant to give us this great sense of assurance that when God is calling us in a direction that requires suffering and sacrifice, that his sovereignty empowers our willingness and our perspective. Uh, Romans eight twenty-eight through 30. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. These whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he also, or these whom he justified, he also glorified. If God, if we could say in truth, that God was eager to redeem Ruth and bless Ruth just based on this passage and everything around it in Romans 8, we can say with even greater certainty that who we are to God because of Jesus, God's eagerness and God's desire to bless us according to his purpose is unfathomably greater. So whatever assurance an Israelite could have gained from God's providence in the book of Ruth just seeing everything played out so much more vividly through Jesus, we should be the ones who gain the uttermost assurance from the things that we see play out in the book of Ruth. God did not leave Boaz's sacrifice unpaid. And I think it's interesting. Remember, Boaz redeemed Ruth to preserve Elimelech's name. Whose name is in the genealogy of Jesus? Is it Elimelech Boaz. Boaz ends up being the name that gets remembered, right? God's sovereignty, his ability to make provisions, to prepare, to make a way for the future, it empowers us to sacrifice and serve, especially when it requires sacrifice and suffering. God works all things out to good to those who love him. Ephesians chapter 3. This will be the final reflection and the final verse we'll look at. I think this is one of the Grandest conclusions, I think, of the book. You know, because Ruth, I think ultimately is not a book where you're meant to make like, I'll try to say this in a balanced way. Ruth is not a book that I think is meant to just put forward hard applications that make you feel deeply inadequate when you hear them. I think Ruth is really supposed to be a book that puts us in a condition of awe and hope that when we read the book of Ruth, that our faith is, is being invigorated, our hope is being filled and is overflowing, our view of God is being raised, and our understanding of his faithfulness is being glorified. So turn to Ephesians chapter 3. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 3, 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church, in Christ Jesus, to all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's what we see in the book of Ruth. The end of the book of Ruth, I think, is meant to be shocking. Like when David's name shows up, it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. what? (laughs) Like, that was the point? That's the whole point. That is the kind of family king david came from it's the family jesus came from and god just slows everything down so we can just pause and see why why this kind of family why was david the kind of person he was god is able to do far beyond anything we can ask think or imagine according to the power that works within us and the prayer that came right before this Paul, in verse 14, begins talking about why he's bowing his knees before the Father. In verse 15, if you'll read with me, from, from whom every family in heaven, and on earth, in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. How did God work beyond anything that could be anticipated or expected? How did God, like, change the nation in ways nobody was purposely even attempting towards? It was all God working through people who at some point had comprehended his love in deep and impactful, heart-changing ways. Think about the kind of person Boaz was. You think about the way that you see the love of God exuding in his speech and his behavior. You think about Naomi. And as difficult as things were for her in the beginning of the book, obviously with how much Orpa and Ruth clung to her and just how quick she was to bless God's name, Naomi was obviously a woman who, even if it was just a mustard seed, at some point, Naomi had implanted in her heart just some good, appropriate comprehension of God's love. You think about Ruth that in that commitment she made to Naomi, that at some point in the process of coming back from Moab to Bethlehem, that foreign woman in some mustard seed of a way had just accurately understood and comprehended the love of God in a way that God could touch and use, right? If we will just comprehend with accuracy and with truth in God's love and God's word, What we've really received and just how much God loves us in ways that change our hearts, the things that God can do to restore, to transform, to rebuild, even to perfect, will be in ways that exceed our every expectation, right? I know all of us here who have been Christians for some time, um, I hope can all say that our lives have been put into places we never would have fathomed. God would take them because God is able to do what exceeds our expectations. That does not give license to not serve him and just say, oh, that's good, God magically do it. No, it, it draws us into his grace to live by his grace and to be so in awe of his person to where we want to do all that we can to embrace whatever it means to be close to him and to serve him. So that's where we'll end um, our study of Boaz. Uh, our, our study of Ruth, study of Boaz, um, but I appreciate so much that we could go through this short little book. Um, it's really impacted my heart to be able to teach through it. Um, again, we'll start Haggai next time, and you know, just studies like this again, I think are just really meant to put our hearts in a condition of awe. You know, just thinking about the things that God has done, the judgments that He has made, just the the greatness of His power and character to work through just such simplicity and humility to just continuously just make us want to serve him with more of our hearts and have just a greater sense of readiness to yield to his will so if you're here today and your desire is to yield to the gospel for the first time uh, we have somewhat dirty water that um, we can use um, to baptize you um, this afternoon and if there's any other request that needs to be made or anything needs to be confessed now is a good time while we send and sing your invitation song